This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we enter into a grand battle of narratives about the world. The stories that we tell ourselves about where we came from and what the purpose of life really is, and how those shape not only human life, but all life on this planet. We talk with Professor Lisa Sedaris, author of the recent book, Consecrating Science, Wonder, Knowledge, and the Natural World. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Lisa Sedaris. She's professor of religious studies at Indiana University, and her research focuses on religion, science, and environmentalism. She's the author of the book Environmental Ethics, Ecological Theology, and Natural Selection. Today, we'll be discussing her recent book, Consecrating Science, Wonder, Knowledge, and the Natural World. Professor Lisa Sedaris, welcome to Things Not Seen. Great. Thank you for having me. So this book is huge in its scope because it's literally talking about both the world that we live in and the cosmos around that world and the worldviews that are battling to help us understand our world and the cosmos that it's situated in. So I'm going to try at the top here to try and restate what I understand to be what you're battling against. Mm -hmm. And let's see if I've got it. So my understanding is that we moderns have fallen into a trap. We've lost our myth of the world. A mythia, I think, is the word that you use. And some of the people that are trying to restore this myth to us, a grand myth that we might use to understand and have a moral vision of the world, are scientists, people like Richard Dawkins and E.O. Wilson. And you want to take a look at that process of they're trying to give us a new myth, a big science myth, Mm -hmm. and you want to raise some questions about that and perhaps give us a better path forward. First of all, do I have the basic thrust of the book correct? Yeah, so the term amythia actually comes from Loyal Rue, who's one of the people I discuss in the book. He's a religion scholar. So amythia is a kind of diagnosis of the human condition to say that many of the social and ecological problems that we have are a function of not having a coherent myth. There's some assumptions there, one being that we once had one, (laughs) whoever we are, and also what it means to have a coherent myth often means a myth that kind of where everything hangs together in terms of our facts and our values, and also a myth that is sort of comprehensive in some sense, like a, you know, scientifically comprehensive. So a, a big story into which all of us can sort of fit our lives. In not having a big story in which we fit in, we have a kind of sense of chaos or anomie or something that then is assumed to be at the root of many of our problems. Assuming that that idea is correct, that we are stricken by amythia, Rue's idea of amythia, what do we actually lose in that? Like, what's the symptom of that disease? Well, one symptom would be that we we don't have a strong sense of our place and a larger story, our place in the universe, which means that we don't feel at home 
on this planet. That's sort of one way of phrasing it. I, I would say that some of the folks who promote what they call universe story would especially make that point, that there's a sense of sort of homelessness and the, the traditional religions, and often that really means more the Western religions, I think, than the Eastern religions, have exacerbated that sense of homelessness in the sense that, you know, Christianity, according to this way of thinking, would say that we don't really belong on, in this world. It's sort of the next world that we're oriented to. So part of it is kind of placing us back into the material, physical world that we live in. Along with that goes sort of sparking a sense of wonder. And of course, wonder is one of the themes of my book and the themes of these narratives that we're talking about that give us a, a sense of a sense of excitement about the world that we live in, that it's kind of a re-enchantment, I think, of the world. And so where some people would say that, you know, science has sort of progressively disenchanted the world, I think the purveyors of these particular stories want to say that it's, you know, very much the opposite, that in fact the scientific account can merge with a spiritual account and and foster a sense of wonder about this universe and our place in it. For people like Laurel Rue, too, I think it goes beyond um, environmental crises, but also all kinds of sort of social crises, you know, sort of sense of why are people so anxious ridden? Why are they so depressed? Why is there so much violence in the world? And so all of this can sort of be diagnosed by a claim that we're not uh, we don't know who we are. We don't know where we fit in. And so for someone like Rue or someone like Dawkins, the kind of myth that they're trying to bring back in borrows heavily from Darwinian ideas from the idea of evolution and the notion that somehow we are here because we are, from some of these writers, the crowning capital of the story. Like the human brain is the pinnacle of evolution. And if we don't have a sense of wonder at how complex and beautifully made we are, we're missing the boat. So first of all, do I have that piece correct that that this is what some of these thinkers are trying to reignite us with. So there's kind of two, I think, broad classes of storytelling going on here. One of them definitely, as you say, looks to the Darwinian account, and often that's referred to as the epic of evolution. So, you know, to tell a kind of grand epic story that has our sort of our biological epic at the root of it. Another um, really looks more to the idea that the cosmos itself is a kind of, uh, has a narrative structure, you know, that it's, it's unfolding according to a kind of purposeful logic. So what we know about the modern cosmos reveals that, you know, that it's not chaotic, that it's not meaningless, but that it's actually producing complexity over time, complexity and consciousness. And that in that sense, humans are, are, sort of the pinnacle of that process. So it might seem counterintuitive that Darwin <laughs> or Darwinism could could lead you to thinking of humans as being sort of the, you know, the ape that's on top or something, right? Darwin, I think, properly understood, seemed to destroy that idea, <laughs> you know, that we're just one of, of many organisms, that it's not a ladder, it's a, it's a tree. But in the particular way that the human is understood in these narratives, I think there's kind of a, a reasserting of the human as being either central in some way or distinct in our modes and level of consciousness and complexity. And you're going to have a critique of that, which I want to get to in our right. next segment. But on the way to that, let me first of all clarify for my listeners, because they may have misheard what you just said. Mm -hmm. These would not be thinkers who would advocate what sort of religious evangelical 
thinkers would call intelligent design. No. That's not the no. kind of universe that we're talking about. No, not at all. Okay. So, it's, so it's, what's the difference? The difference is, well, first of all, I don't think there's a divine guiding force in these accounts, at least not in the, the storytelling, you know, from the narrators themselves. And no, so I mean, Richard Dawkins would not, would not see a designer. Not. Yeah. No, absolutely not. However, I think in, you know, for example, Journey of the Universe or the Universe Story, there is a space there for um, people who subscribe to different religions to to see their story and within that story. So, you know, if you come from a Christian perspective, presumably you don't have to give up that account. Then the idea that you might be, you know, that, that God's son came to the earth as Jesus and that there's salvation. I mean, you could still, although I think it's tricky <laughs> how you would do that, you could still fit that into this larger story. But the storytellers themselves are not presenting this for the most part as a religious kind of narrative. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Professor Lisa Sedaris of Indiana University. We're discussing her recent book, Consecrating Science, Wonder, Knowledge, and the Natural World. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Professor Lisa Sedaris of Indiana University. We're discussing her recent book, Consecrating Science, Wonder, Knowledge, and the Natural World. So before the break, we were talking about the fact that there are thinkers like Richard Dawkins and E.O. Wilson that want to remythologize our world, but not by giving us kind of an intelligently designed world, but a world that sort of bootstraps itself a cosmos that bootstraps itself into meaning out of chaos. Mm-hmm. We said it right before the break that this was not an, an example of intelligent design, but it is a mythology that oftentimes puts humanity at the center of it, a thought process that that has been termed anthropocentrism. Mm-hmm. And you have described your project here as a kind of anti-anthropocentrism or that that inhabits your scholarly approach to these questions. So mm-hmm. let's let's take a moment and talk about the anthropocentric view and why you choose to be anti-anthropocentric in your approach. Mm-hmm. Well, so one way I think in which the anthropocentrism manifests itself is in the idea that we now have the story that's virtually complete – E.O. Wilson, for example, calls that consilience, sort of all of the different disciplines and forms of knowledge converge into this one account. So having that sort of narrative assumes a picture of the human as um, a kind of almost omniscient-like narrator of the story. So in that sense, there's a, a kind of smaller narrative or smaller story to the story, which is sort of the story of how we discovered who we are. And so that is also a kind of triumphal account of science to say, now we know 
And that phrase comes up a lot in these, this kind of storytelling. Now we know, you know, our, our ancestors or people even, you know, 50 years ago or 100 years ago couldn't have known the things that we know. So now that we know this, we sort of know our place in the universe. So there's the emphasis on human knowledge as being really significant and sort of exalted. So when I talk about consecrating science, you know, it's sort of treating science as almost like sacred revelation. So the knowers of the story, which are often scientists, form sort of something almost a little bit like a a priestly class who then pass down this revelation to the rest of us. So that's one way in which it's kind of human-centered, but of course you could say that about lots of science. But it's also the case that the way that the story is narrated, it keeps humans at the center in particular ways. And one way is this idea we were just discussing of sort of the universe moves almost inevitably, I think in some versions of the story, I'd say inevitably towards, if not us, then creatures like us, you know. So it's sort of built into the universe that the universe implicitly from its beginning consisted of processes that lead to this sort of human. So there's this moment of insight when we discover that we are the universe reflecting on itself. And that's another sort of um, motif that you'll often hear in these stories. So in ascribing a kind of purpose to the universe, it's a way of reassuring us that we are sort of what the universe had in mind all along. Let me see if I have this. And as I say this back to you, correct me where I'm wrong. So the earlier generations, centuries ago, had a religious limited view of the world in which they put the world at the center. And then Copernicus and Galileo came along and they knocked the world out of the center. Mm -hmm. And now these scientists have come like E.O. Wilson and Richard Dawkins, and they have now put humanity back at the center insofar as they're saying that the natural processes of the universe as they unfold would lead naturally to someone like us inevitably. And so we are the meaning of the story. Am I hearing well, that correctly? Well, let me be clear about sort of who's saying this, because okay. I don't think that, for example, is what is what Richard Dawkins would say. But it is, it is something that you hear um, in, in the universe story narratives in the sense that, yeah, I mean, so the human has sort of come full circle to being back in the center because of wonder, which we haven't talked much about yet. But that is a, that's a sort of key theme here is that when you look at a lot of these narratives, they are promoting wonder as a way of kind of fitting ourselves back into the cosmos or connecting with nature or something like that. But the kind of wonder that's being promoted here, I argue, is really a kind of wonder at the human. And that is true of Richard Dawkins in the sense that the way that wonder is defined is that there's the superior form of wonder is scientific wonder. And scientific wonder is a way of kind of eradicating mystery. So we encounter a mystery, we encounter a puzzle, we encounter the unknown, and then science proceeds to sort of solve that mystery or that problem. And in doing so, you know, it, it's it's a human achievement. And so the wonder that we, we often feel or are instructed to feel really reflects back on us and our power to kind of comprehend the universe. So I think that that aspect of a sort of anthropocentrism is is a feature of Dawkins' account because scientific wonder really is, is superior to, he would say, not only wonder in religion, which might function very differently. He would depict it as just being mystery-mongering, right? But also wonder at, at nature. 
Because wonder at nature is just sort of, in Dawkins' account, sort of unclarified wonder. It hasn't been clarified by science. So if you're wondering at nature without understanding how something works, then you're just exhibiting a kind of preference for ignorance. So not knowing is associated with ignorance. Knowing is associated with this particular kind of wonder, which is superior to other kinds of wonder. And in your book, Consecrating Science, you talk about this kind of wonder at the world that looks at the evolution of the human brain as a pinnacle. And you classify that as a twofold danger. You say it it can be a danger to the natural world as well as to our moral well-being. And so I want to ask about both of those dangers. How is how is putting humanity at the center of the story dangerous to our natural world? Well, because the way that wonder is spoken of here is that it's an al- it's aligned with reality, right? So if you want to experience real wonder, then you must experience it sort of as the scientist experiences it. Now, if you're not a scientist, you you can't do that directly. And that's, you know, here's where it's kind of parallel to certain kinds of religion. So someone else sort of translates that reality for you and tells you what you should wonder at. So that's one move. But at the same time, in sort of placing scientific wonder above, you know, what we might call religious wonder as it's sort of caricatured here as, as you know, mystery mongering, in elevating science above Religion, it also elevates science above nature in the sense that a person who wonders at nature without understanding everything about how it works is not experiencing real wonder. And so that abstract form of scientific wonder, which is sort of promoted as being more real than what you're experiencing, I think can can actually sort of alienate us from nature and sort of denigrate nature as something that is almost then not real. If science is what is most real, then nature is not quite real. Is this what in the book you refer to as scientism, or is that something else? Yeah, I mean, that's scientism, or I mean, consecrated science really is a kind of scientism. So elevating science to a a kind of, yeah, a realm of pure revelation. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Professor Lisa Sedaris of Indiana University. We're discussing her recent book, Consecrating Science, Wonder, Knowledge, and the Natural World. And so then how, how is this, revelation, uh, this elevation of wonder, how is this dangerous or inimical to our moral well-being? Mm-hmm. Well, I think wonder, as I try to, to articulate it in this book, in contrast to those forms that I'm critiquing, is something that, you know, around which cluster a lot of other virtues, you want to call them virtues, humility, openness to otherness, you know, sort of appreciation of difference, of that which is different from oneself, empathy, compassion, and also a kind of darker side to wonder in some sense that it's, it renders us sort of vulnerable. It's a destabilizing emotion because... It can, you know, reinforce the idea that actually we're not the center of things, that there's all kinds of unknowns that we exist in the midst of. So the kind of wonder that would exalt the human mind, which I think is really what's being celebrated in some of these accounts of scientific wonder, I think encourages us to think that that we can, we can always find um, the solutions to the problems that we face. We can find them through technology and science. It encourages a kind of overconfidence in what we can do, whereas, you know, sort of genuine wonder, if I could call it that, I think is something that that encourages us to towards caution and restraint and a sort of consciousness of all that we don't know. 
I'm aware that in our conversation so far, we have been cautious about our language and we haven't used a lot of language that is energized by religious tradition. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to venture one here and let's try it on and see how it works. So if we're talking about a kind of wonder that leads to uh, dangers for our morality and dangers for our world, is there a parallel here for what Christian thinkers might call idolatry? Mm -hmm, exactly, yeah. Okay, and so help us to flesh out that, yeah, that parallel. Um, so one of the people that I draw on quite a bit in this book and in some of my previous work is Rachel Carson. And Rachel Carson, who you know is the author of Silent Spring and many people would say kind of started the environmental movement, speaks very much in this language of, you know, concern about idolatry, idolizing sort of, you know, knowledge at the expense of nature, um, especially, again, sort of technological knowledge and the sort of the confidence that it, that it breeds, the overconfidence that it breeds. And that sort of language certainly comes out of the religious tradition that she sort of imbibed at a young age. So, and that is... Uh, particularly the Calvinist tradition. Um, you know, and Calvinism gets kind of a bad rap as being, you know, not, not eco-friendly. But there are actually many dimensions, I think, of, of the Calvinist tradition that speak to that sort of overweening pride of the human and the way that as we sort of puff up, you know, our egos, the world kind of narrows around us. And, and Carson uses that kind of language. And there's a really interesting book by an environmental historian named Mark Stoll that sort of it's called Inherit the Holy Mountain. Let's put in a little plug for his book there. That looks at how many of the environmental pioneers in the American context in particular actually come out of the, the Presbyterian Calvinist tradition. So there is definitely a through line to some of that concern of about idolatry as sort of the greatest sin and how that impacts how we interact with the natural world. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Professor Lisa Sedaris of Indiana University. We're discussing her recent book, Consecrating Science, Wonder, Knowledge, and the Natural World. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Professor Lisa Sedaris of Indiana University. We're discussing her recent book, Consecrating Science, Wonder, Knowledge, and the Natural World. Well, in our conversation and in your book, you mentioned Rachel Carson. And for the sake of our listeners who may be unfamiliar with who she is, who was she, and why is she important to you in your work? Well, I hope there's not anyone who doesn't know who Rachel Carson is. Now, she's actually someone whose whose name is familiar to so many people, but who, many of whom have not actually ever read her books. So Rachel Carson wrote Silent Spring, um, which many people would say started the American environmental movement. And, and this that, was roughly 1975? Uh, 1962. Oh. Right. So preceding a lot of the environmental legislation in this country, you know, Endangered Species Act, that sort of thing. A lot of, a lot of people would sort of credit, you know, those changes in, you know, legally and in American culture to that book. So Silent Spring was particularly an indictment of this, the overuse of chemicals 
and the environment, things like DDT, pesticides, that sort of thing. But, but it's also very much a, a social critique of human arrogance. And, and, and as I read Carson, so I should say her first three books were all on the sea. She wrote about the ocean, so her first three books. And she was a well-known writer before she wrote Silent Spring. But those were sort of more kind of nature and science writing books, whereas Silent Spring really was a, a pivot into making a normative argument about the environment to say that, you know, these things that we are doing are bad. You know, they're destroying us. They're destroying, they're destroying nature. So Carson, as I read her, she kind of presents us with two kinds of enchantment. And one that I think she's diagnosing and critiquing is the way in which science and technology have allowed us to become sort of enchanted with ourselves. And again, that's the sort of, you know, Calvinist uh, idolatry point. So there's a kind of enchantment with ourselves and with our, our powers. You know, she often uses this language of intoxication. We've become sort of intoxicated with our powers at a time when, you know, there was a really heady sense, I think, that humans could do anything, you know, that we could control nature through chemicals, that, you know, we had um, so many tools, you know, with which to manipulate the natural world. And, we had moved out into space. So. And we had just begun to create synthetic materials right. through polymers and plastics and All like the that. things that are coming back to yeah. haunt us now, especially those plastics. But, yeah, so that's sort of one form of enchantment, which I think she was pointing to and critiquing. But if you read kind of her her other work and her essays and lectures and things like that, and, and also her writing on the sea, I think that she always felt that that wonder was a kind of anchor, you know, a kind of moral grounding in the world. And so there's a small book that was published after she died, which was just a few years after Silent Spring. It was actually a book called The Sense of Wonder that was written for parents sort of to, to know how to sort of introduce their children to the natural world. And the way that Carson describes it there, and this comes out quite a bit in my book, is that to foster the sense of wonder in a child, it really is a kind of sensory connection with the natural world. And that if we can form that kind of sensory connection, it gives us an orientation on the natural world. And actually, I think in our lives in general, that's always a kind of a reference point, a place of solace, but, you know, a reminder of, of, again, sort of where we fit into things. But here where we fit into things is that we are not the ones that, we're not the point of it all, you know, that we're kind of a small, insignificant, but, you know, um, certainly wondering entity within the natural world. And so if one has that sort of sense of wonder in place then these temptations, these enchantments of science or technology or just, you know, forms of hubris, which I think she was generally critical of, can then, you know, we can resist those more easily if we have this kind of investment in something that is, I think she would say, more important and more wondrous than those things. And so having that kind of horizon of, you know, the value of the natural world in which we sort of orient ourselves allows us to sort of critique which things we ought and ought not to do as we move forward with science and technology. You keep using this phrase, the natural world. Yeah. And we're recording this in Chicago. And even though Chicago is a city of many parks, when I look out the window, when I walk from place to place, when I go on the train, 
what I see is sculptured space. Mm -hmm. And even when I think about where I grew up down in the South, I would leave the city and I would be immediately in farmland and monoculture. And again, it was sculptured space. It just had more leaves. Yeah. Is there still mm -hmm. a natural world that we can meaningfully talk about? Is there still a wild out there that could challenge us? Or really is the world now, I mean, the, the age that we talk about is the Anthropocene, yeah. the, the age that is based on the human. Have we, have we turned a corner where even the idea of the wild is a man-made idea now or a human-made idea? Well, I mean, this is always the big question, you know, and it's one that I think environmental thought, environmental ethics always, you know, comes back to. But now that we have begun to use this term, the Anthropocene, the Anthropocene seems to, in a way, kind of answer that question in ways that I find a little disturbing, you know, to say that, oh, now nature and culture are, you know, they're all, they're, they're no longer distinct or there never was such a thing as wild nature. There is no such thing as nature, you know, that everything is a manufactured landscape, as you say, we look around us, we don't see anything that's natural. I mean, in some ways, well, there's sort of two things I would say about that. One is that I think that argument often gets used as a reason to keep doing more of the same, you know, to say, well, it's, I mean, there isn't any nature left anyway. So, you know, why not go ahead and just engineer our environments or to say that, you know, there's, there's no distinction between sort of invasive species or native species. So, so why not just, you know, create these new kind of human-made gardens everywhere? And, you know, that's, that's interesting, too. People don't know the difference when they look at it. But to the extent that that, it removes, I think, a kind of an important kind of moral distinction that we need to function in this world. And that is that we need, I think, as human beings, sort of ironically, I mean, and you know, that's not just my own idea. I mean, there are other people who say this. I think Bill McKibben has traditionally been one of those people to, to talk about being concerned about the end of nature is to talk about the end of a way of being in the world where there is something beyond us that isn't, you know, that doesn't simply bear the imprint of the human. There are religious communities, and so two that come to mind would be the Roman Catholic community here in the West and in Eastern cultures, the Hindu community, both of which set very strict limits on how human beings can interact with certain aspects of the world. Mm -hmm. So for Roman Catholics, certain types of medical experimentation, certain medical procedures are forbidden. For Hindus, interactions with certain animals and for, for certain uh, extreme forms of Hinduism, even any kind of engagement with the slaughter of animals at all is forbidden. And so those are, are ways in which religions put limits on our ability to control nature just because we can do it doesn't mm -hmm. mean that we that we should right. do it and these are communities that say we must not do it mm -hmm. would that be the kind of limitation that you would be advocating or would you be would you want to find a way to go around religion and instead find a more secular limitation that's based in principle or philosophy ethics if you will mm -hmm. i don't really draw a very sharp distinction between those things i think if you look at this book for example i think it's at least I hoped it was kind of written in a way that could speak to people who might be approaching this from a secular worldview or a religious worldview or who, you know, don't also keep that distinction as clear as some people do. But I do think that religions have often played that role of sort of reminding us that uh, there are limits to our knowledge, that there are um, or ought to be, you know, limits to the ways that we can interact with and manipulate other beings 
But I don't think that necessarily has to come from one of those traditions. But I think the, the loss of something that we can refer to as nature, you know, is a, is a loss of the idea that there are limits to the human. And so, I mean, another way you can sort of think about whether there's something like nature out there anymore is to say, well, actually, nature's getting wilder than ever, right? Wildness hasn't gone away. It's, it's actually what we're encountering now, that we have provoked the earth into a kind of wildness like we've never seen before. So, you know, climate change could be read as the earth fighting back, <laughs> responding to what we've done, and it's anything but tame. So it depends on how you want to talk about wildness, but in some ways the world seems wilder than ever. What fascinates me about your answer is you don't have an antipathy towards religion as a limiting process, but some of the people that you have brought up as interlocutors in your book. So, for example, uh, Richard Dawkins, certainly. It, I also think of Carl Sagan and his sort of condemnation of the demon-haunted world of religion. Mm-hmm. You know, there are those who would say, we should have limits, perhaps, but not those kind of limits. And you don't have that kind of distinction, which I, I find fascinating. Yeah, I think there's a lot of there's sort of condescending attitudes towards religion in, in a lot of the people that I'm writing about in this book, including some of whom, you know, are religion scholars especially in the sense that they understand religion to, to primarily be or most importantly to be something like creation stories that function analogously to science. So in this way, religions are sort of bad science. <laughs> they're, you know, they're a poor attempt to do what science does much better. And so if that's how you understand you know, a creation story, then, then your response to, would be to do what these folks are doing is to say, well, let's write a better creation story. And then once everybody adopts that, will be okay. But there's all kinds of assumptions there about what religion is and what it does. And that's actually a pretty unsophisticated reading of religion. And it's surprising. It's not surprising coming from someone like Richard Dawkins, but it is surprising coming from religion scholars that they seem to sort of always refer back to this, you know, kind of simplistic notion of how religions function in the world, or even what the connection is between a creation story and how people then live in the world. You know, that's not such a simple dynamic as, as is being assumed there, that people operate in the world according to some creation story that they've got, you know, sort of as their blueprint for how they are in the world. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Professor Lisa Sedaris of Indiana University. We're discussing her recent book, Consecrating Science, Wonder, Knowledge, and the Natural World. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you might be aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of those is the Freedom Road podcast. It's hosted by Lisa Sharon Harper. She's a front-lines, on-the-ground activist and advocate for issues of justice and peace. Each month, she gathers a group of leaders together to talk about progressive issues from a faith perspective. I record and produce the show, and every month I come away from the conversations deeply moved and having learned a ton about our world and the struggles for justice. I'd love for you to listen. You can find the Freedom Road podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as well as at their website, freedomroad.us. That's freedomroad.us. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Professor Lisa Sedaris of Indiana University. We're discussing her recent book, Consecrating Science, Wonder, Knowledge, and the Natural World. So we've been talking about your book, 
And we've been talking about the ideas that led you to write this book and what you're trying to battle down in some ways in terms of of different types of, of ways of approaching narrating the world. But we haven't talked a lot about your own journey and what has brought you to this space. And so if you're willing, I would like to ask you, first of all, do you identify yourself as a religious person? Um, yes and no, I guess. Let's unpack (laughs) Um, that. How yes and how no? I mean, I certainly, I certainly still think in the sort of modes of the religion. I think the religious tradition that I was raised in to some extent, which is, as it turns out, the Presbyterian (laughs) tradition. Although I don't, I don't think that I recognize some of those values as being part of that tradition until I, I kind of learned it later in life. So that's sort of interesting when you study religion and you learn about, you know, the, the history and the, the figures and the ideas and what it was they were trying to do with a particular tradition, it's like, oh, okay, so that's, I see that now in some of the things that that I think about or the ways that I, I frame certain arguments or the, the kinds of metaphors. I mean, people have, have pointed this out to me, for example, in this book, that there's a lot of sort of religious language, which I don't think I was even aware of. I mean, certainly my... I wouldn't want to say something so simple as like nature is my religion, but I do think that for me that's the that's the kind of conduit, <laughs> you know. That's where I feel that presence of something that's that's more than human. And for listeners who have been tracking with us through this conversation, I think they may be wondering at this point: Are you a scientist who's trained as a scientist who has become interested in religion? Are you a religion scholar who's been trained in religion who's become interested in science, or are you a third possibility altogether? Mm-hmm. Well, something like all of those things, I guess. I mean, I could go back to, you know, how much time do you have? <laughs> so I got very interested in, I grew up in a, in a community that was very conservative, religious, not so much in my own family, although my father was very, very religious and um, kind of became evangelical over the years. But the town that I grew up in, which is a little town in Indiana, there was a lot of tension over the teaching of evolution in schools. There was also sort of some book banning and even some book burning at one point. And I became very interested in science kind of late in high school, actually in a chemistry class, which is funny because I don't have any particular love for chemistry now. But in thinking about, you know, the periodic table and how you age the earth and all of these things, I thought were very interesting. And I had a chemistry teacher who was a creationist, essentially. I mean, he, at one point in class, said something like, you know, the earth is not nearly as old as the evolutionists claim. And I remember just being really stunned by that because I thought, now, how can someone sort of understand how the periodic table works, for example, and elements and understand things like carbon dating? And like, either you buy it or you don't buy it. Like, how could you sort of then say this can't, you know, this isn't really the true story? And so for listeners that are unfamiliar, so when you re- reference things like carbon dating in the periodic table, there are elements on the periodic table that in order for us to have the the limited amounts that we have, they would have had to undergo radioactive decay over time. And it, it takes a long time, given what we know about the universe, just those physical facts... Right indicate that the universe is older than, say, 6,000 years. Right, yeah. yeah. So I was I was really interested in that, and I started reading about evolution and creation and things like that. And I, I came upon people like Carl Sagan, one of his early books, which is called Dragons of Eden, I think, and Stephen Jay Gould, who I really enjoyed reading, and who, you know, was very interested, Gould was, in kind of the way that science has been misused and 
misapplied, um, including things like for, for racist agendas and things like that. And so I, I studied bioanthropology as an undergrad. I wanted to study human evolution. <laughs> and then I started studying the history of science. And I thought, actually, I don't want to be a scientist. I'm, I'm much more interested in, in the ideas and how they get used. And then, so I went to grad school in history of science for a year. And then and I left. I didn't, I was not happy there. And eventually I thought, maybe I could do this in religious studies because I was particularly interested in the science-religion interface, conflict, overlap. So I tried that, and that seemed to be the place where people would allow me to think the sort of things that I think about. And so it was kind of a convoluted journey to get there. In a conversation that I had a couple of years ago with the late Phyllis Tickle, who was a a, a writer about religion and was a grand commentator on the kind of evolution of religions, she made a comment that she thought that in the 21st century, anyone going to seminary should study physics mm-hmm. and should be aware of the cosmologies and those sorts of things. So I'm going to put that in front of you and say, that's Phyllis Tickle's advice. Would you agree with that advice? Would you attenuate that advice in some way? What would you recommend that a seminarian in the 21st century would be studying? Well, I mean, I've always been much more interested in in this planet <laughs> and and the sort of evolution of life on this planet. So for me, it's really Darwin. I mean, Dar- especially Darwin himself. If you you know, not very many people read Darwin, you know, in his own his own work. And there's a really, I think, beautiful and in some ways dark and disturbing, but also just magnificent account of life there. And, you know, Darwin himself was very aware of the suffering in the natural world and very troubled by it. But he, you know, he presents this this view of life, um, is the phrase that he uses. And it is, it's a view of life. You know, I think it's a way of of seeing, of contemplating that long history and what evolution has done in ways that aren't actually pre-planned. And it's the sort of non-pre-planned aspect of it which really makes it so incredible. And the fact that so much beauty is generated out of these, you know, natural processes that makes it all so much more interesting. So I guess for someone like me, I never could really understand the creationist impulse, you know, sort of why why that would make the world more interesting rather than less interesting to think that God had created the world in six days or something. Wouldn't it be more amazing if it actually came about in this way that that Darwin describes? And I don't think that that means that you can't have a kind of theistic account. Obviously, lots of people do. But it's a, I think that's a much more interesting theistic account than and an account where humans actually aren't the point of it is also to me much more interesting and so I wonder sometimes if there's just a a temperamental difference between people who react negatively to that sort of story and those who react positively to it and if i if I knew the answer to that question, I think it would really it would tell us so much about where we go wrong when we teach people about science, you know why we can't get them to see that this story of how vast and strange and old and not like us so much of nature is, isn't so much more interesting and spiritually fulfilling than one in where God creates the world in six days and then, you know, we, and that's it. <laughs> and we're at the top. So as you've worked on this project, you've taken a, a step back and sort of looked at the grand sweep of human intellectual history 
So you've taken a big bite. What is it that still frustrates you at this point? Well, I mean, the, the book that I'm working on now is about religion and technology, um, and particularly the way that, that technology and the sort of, as we've put it, Anthropocene age really is kind of promulgating a particular kind of religion. So the way that technology functions is religion. So one of the things that I guess I find very frustrating is stories about that sort of use human evolution or some image of the human to say that we've we've always made it. We've made it this far. You know, we're so we're so adaptable. That's the sort of you know essential quality of the human that we can adapt to anything. That we are a creature who's a kind of world making creature. That's how we've survived. And the way that this kind of storytelling, and I think a lot of scientists, especially when they write in a more popular vein, sort of present the human in this way. The way that encourages precisely the kinds of responses to our crises that we do not want. You know, in other words, to say, we've always found the solutions to our problems. You know, we'll find a way of engineering the planet. That the essence of the human is to, what makes us distinct from other animals is that we can make worlds on this grand scale. And there's a kind of earth-fleeing impulse there that I think is actually far more dangerous than the earth-fleeing impulse that is often attributed to religious people. You know, that this, is, <laughs> this world isn't where we belong. You know, we can find another world or we can engineer a new world. And I just see this kind of, this kind of rhetoric sort of masquerading as optimism or hope or something like that, which to me just sounds like bad theology. And what is it that keeps you hopeful, or where do you find a source of, of hopeful buoyancy in the midst of this? Well, I mean, it depends on sort of what day it is. I mean, some days I feel a lot more hopeful than others. I mean, I'm especially concerned about climate change in particular. That's something I spend a lot of time thinking and reading about. But, you know, if you look at a lot of things that are going on around the world, a lot of European countries have, you know, have declared that they're, you know, they're getting rid of all of their coal-fired power plants, you know, by, you know, in the next few years. And there's been a real response to, you know, we were talking about plastics a moment ago, banning single-use plastics. I mean, I think humans, this is my view of the human, but I think humans always figure these things out a little too late. But I do see that things that many of us have been worried about, you know, for decades are now kind of beginning to, to register, you know. There are people noticing that we can't continue to live this way. And, you know, other countries are doing it. Of course, the U.S. isn't making much progress on this. But, you know, I mean, there's a way in which even, you know, even with Trump pulling us out of, you know, climate accords and things like that, there's a way in which it doesn't even matter that much because there's so much going on at local levels and sort of independently or state by state that I think I think this is going to be more of a, you know, a, a bottom-up than a top-down thing. So there are little pockets of hope that I see, you know, I see that people are beginning to appreciate the magnitude of the problems that we have and what's required to change. But also if you look at some of the young people, you know, these very young activists all over the world, really, they're not going to stand for it. You know, they're not going to stand for the complete passivity and inaction of the adults around them. And so I think it's just generationally it's going to have to change the way that we're living. Well, Professor Lisa Sedaris, I truly enjoyed your book, and I'm so thankful that you took some time today to speak to us. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
We've been speaking today with Lisa Sedaris. We've been discussing her recent book, Consecrating Science. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.